We're actually going to uh, transition now where this week we're doing things a little bit differently where we are actually going to, um, we're going to do the sermon early. So once the sermon winds up and you get the feeling of like the service is almost over, fight that feeling because that's not going to be the case this week. If you have a Bible with you or an app to follow along, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 16 this week. I'm going to read it. You can follow along on the screen if you'd like. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children. She had an Egyptian slave girl whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, You see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my slave girl. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her slave girl, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. When Sarai, then Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my slave girl to your embrace, and when, you saw that she had con- when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Your slave girl is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she ran away from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave girl of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm running away from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, now you have conceived and shall bear a son. You shall call him Ishmael, for the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, with his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall live at odds with all his kin. So she named the Lord who spoke to her. You are El-Rohi. For she said, have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahairoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. On Tuesday mornings here at the church, we host the Island Pregnancy Center. And I had a conversation with Mary Ellen, who, who's the local director for the Island Pregnancy Center, who kind of runs the program here. And she had mentioned how for some of the clients, they actually find it to be a bit of an obstacle that the program is being run in a church building. And I found that interesting. And, and as we spoke more about it, she said that some of them, because of maybe their upbringing in church, 
or some of them just kind of aware of some of the, the ways that church is perceived in our cultural moment, see that churches have a reputation for looking on, up on women who are, are single moms, who get pregnant out of wedlock, who, who have surprise pregnancies, or who are considering certain outcomes with their pregnancy, that, that they feel this sense of internal judgment from the fact that it's at a church. I might be judged for going there. They might look at me a certain way. And even entering a church building can have certain connotations for them. And I, this struck me when, when I heard this from Mary Ellen. And, and as I reflected upon it, it, it kind of broke my heart that, that the people of God are known for this kind of judgmentalism where it might actually be a hindrance to some of these women receiving some of the help that they might need. But as we talked about it, we, we, we thought that maybe some of the problem is in the fact that the church has for decades focused so much on this picture of like the perfect nuclear family that if you don't fit the mold of this nuclear family where you know the husband and the wife, they're both virgins when they get married, they've never been divorced, they're like... They're having kids together, this first marriage. If you don't fit that mold, then you're looked down on, that this is like not God's plan for your life, that divorce, sex outside of marriage, having children out of wedlock, being a single mom, all of these are like things that God doesn't want. And so you're judged if that is the situation that you find yourself in. We have this idea that God might be almost like restricted to just blessing the kind of ideal picture of a family. That God blesses those who raise their kids in stable homes. Is that it though? Is God restricted to blessing these kinds of families only? Is God's grace only for kids who come from quote-unquote stabled homes or quote-unquote whole families? Where's the the hope for the pregnancy center client who finds herself lost and confused and uncertain of her future? Where's the hope for the single mom who has fled a toxic or violent relationship? Where's the hope for those who have longed to have the kind of family that that the the Christian church has, has kind of idealized and has kept talking about, but due to choices or life circumstances, or things that they had never planned for, things didn't work out that way. Does God only work in the quote-unquote whole situations, or does God actually move and work and has something for those who find themselves in situations of, of broken families and homes, of the mess and the grit of real life? Maybe you've experienced something like this. Maybe you've come into church before surrounded by quote-unquote religious people and you feel like the odd one out. Or feel like if people actually knew my story and what's gone on and parts of my past that I would just be condemned for it. Or if people really knew what's gone on, I'd be looked down upon. Maybe that God actually disapproves of me because of my story and my life. 
Maybe you're sorting through, yes, I know that God seems to have this best case scenario of how He invites His people to live this ideal for family life, an environment for raising children, but what if that's not where I find myself? In Genesis 16, we're told this story of Hagar. And her story is one that I think offers hope that we're longing for today. This is a moment where the lives of a blessed patriarch, Abram, a barren wife, and an Egyptian slave girl intersect. And it shows that in the messiness of life, in the brokenness that sin brings to relationships, God comes near to those who find themselves in these situations. God is close to those who are broken. God is close to those who find themselves in the messiness of life. Let's recap a little bit. Abraham was a man that God chose out of obscurity. And approached him and he said, I'm going to bless you and you're going to have tons of children, as many as there are stars in the sky and sand and the seashore. And I'm going to bless all of the nations through your offspring. And your offspring is going to inherit this land that I have promised to them, and this will be for them. The problem is, we read that Abraham, Abram, and his wife Sarai, they're kind of past the prime age of bearing children. Sarai especially, where where she's barren, she can't have kids. And this poses a problem when God's promise has been, your children, your offspring are going to be the ones that bless the nation. And for years after this promise has been received, they are sorting through, okay, how is God going to fulfill this promise? How's God going to come through when he said, your kids are going to be able to do this, but you guys can't have kids? And so after years of struggling and wrestling through this, as I'm sure many who have wrestled through issues of infertility and like how that's going to happen, they're, they're trying to figure out how, how does this work? How do we make this work? And so they decide, well, you know, we have this slave girl from Egypt. Maybe God's plan is like, instead of sleeping with Sarah and getting her pregnant, he sleeps with Hagar and she'll get pregnant and those will be the kids that God is actually talking about. That you can have sex with a slave and that is how God's promise will come about. First of all, I think for all of us, our kind of gut reaction to this proposed solution to the problem seems a little bit weird, right? And I think it should for us. Like, it's not, like, slavery, like, sexual abuse of slaves in order to produce children, like, a whole lot of mess in there, right? And and it should be strange for us. But we need to understand also culturally, this wasn't weird for them like it is for us. It doesn't mean it was okay but it wasn't weird for them. It wasn't as strange. In fact, we read in some like ancient Babylonian laws that they had laws in place where if a woman of status couldn't conceive children, then her servant could essentially be a surrogate for her and bear children uh, that would be considered her own. This didn't happen often in the Bible, But what's interesting that we do read is the other times that it happens, it's Abram's grandson Jacob and his wives 
who, who participate in this kind of thing. And that's a whole other sermon and kind of thing of like messed up things we learn from our grandparents. But uh, this isn't something that God is saying, okay, go ahead and do this because it's in the Bible. What's even weirder about this situation is Hagar is a slave girl from Egypt who is likely a slave that they received when Abram and Sarai went down to Egypt and Abram, fearing for his life, lets Pharaoh marry his wife Sarai because he's scared that if he, he, pretend, if he says that she's his wife, that Pharaoh will kill him. So there's this whole like messed up drama of like, pretend you're my sister and go marry the king so that I can save my life. Like there's relational dysfunction in Abram and Sarah's relationship already. And when this whole thing gets found out that this is actually Abram's wife and Pharaoh's like, this is messed up, get out of here. And he sends them with like a bunch of stuff, like get out of here, take a bunch of this stuff. And part of what he gives them is slaves. And so imagine Hagar, this Egyptian slave that then becomes the surrogate for Sarai, who is actually a dowry gift and a like get out of Egypt gift from Pharaoh because of this whole other messed up relational situation. It's messy. It's messy. And what's interesting for us is there's nothing in the text explicitly that we read through that says Abram and Sarai abused power dynamics and violated the agency of a young woman by requiring her to become a surrogate. Like, it's not spelled out like that, of like, morally wrong. Like, there's no law tucked in there. But what's beautiful about the way that the Hebrew Scriptures are written in the Old Testament, and I I heard this from a, a Hebrew scholar this week, is that the authors of, of the Old Testament, inspired by the Spirit, often taught through the idea of discovery rather than just dictating what you should and shouldn't do. Often the way that they composed and wrote these stories are for us to read and to meditate through and to see, oh my goodness, like this is what's being taught in this story. And so there's something for us to discover here as we read this story. And one of the beautiful discoveries in this passage, and we're going to be Bible nerds for a little bit, is that Genesis 16 is purposefully modeled after the story of the fall in Genesis 3. Remember the story of Adam and Eve who eat the forbidden fruit that they weren't supposed to? And that is like the event that sends humanity into sin and catastrophe? This story has echoes of the fall all over it. Let's, let's nerd out for a little bit, okay? I, I was working through some of this in my Genesis class that I had this fall, and I totally geeked out. So you're going to geek out with me a little bit, okay? We have two columns here. The Genesis 16 story and the Genesis 3, the fall story. And there are very interesting, purposeful parallels between them that we see. Like in Genesis 16, right, we read this language that Sarai took Hagar and gave her to her husband. Exact mirroring of the language in Genesis 3, like Eve took the fruit and she gave it to her husband. It's a purposeful mirroring of language. In 16.4, after that they, uh, they conceived... Hagar saw that she conceived and looked at her mistress with contempt. You remember from the fall narrative 
that as soon as they ate of the fruit, their eyes were opened and they saw that they were negative. Or saw that they were negative. Saw that they were naked. I'm thinking about COVID too much. They saw that they were naked. This like opening of eyes and see, and then something negative happening because of it. In 16.6-8, after what happens between the conflict with, with Sarai and Hagar, Hagar runs in fear and is found by the angel of the Lord who asks, where ha- uh, have you come from? In Genesis 3, we read of Adam and Eve who hide in fear from God who asks, where are you? We read this complaint. You remember in Genesis 3, as, as soon as God approaches Adam about the sin that happened, he says, this woman that you gave to me, it's her fault. In Genesis 16, Sarai, this complaint to her husband, I gave you this slave girl, and this is what happened. The language is mirrored. Uh, even in God's words to, uh, to the women in these passages, The way he speaks to Hagar, he says, I will so greatly multiply your offspring. Where in uh, the fall narrative, pronouncing kind of the the consequences of their action, he says, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. Uh, And again, uh, you will conceive and shall bear a son, mirroring the language of in pain you shall bring forth children or bring forth sons. Now, You may not care about this. This was something that when I discovered it, it was like this eye-opening moment for me. This is a way written into the beauty and the texture of this story that we see. Like, this is not a happy story. It's purposely saying, look, there are echoes of the fall all over it. And you don't have to read like it was bad for them to do what they did. For us to realize, no, we see, we see the fall all over it. We see sin playing out in these ways all over the place. And maybe you, and, and I know for me, we have moments in our lives where we see echoes of the fall all over it. Where, you know what, I don't need someone to tell me you should not do that. Because I can, I can just see in the reality of what I'm doing. Like, man, I'm, I'm Adam and Eve grabbing the fruit there. I'm, exp- I'm, I'm reliving out the fall in my own life. Something else we see in how the author puts this story together is as a way of, of showing that, listen, like they shouldn't have done this, is showing that there are natural sin-enabled outcomes of the actions that were taken. As soon as Hagar conceives, right, a rivalry begins. All of a sudden, the you know, relationship between slave and master, which is not a great one anyway, becomes an even more contemptuous one. Where she looks on her mistress with contempt, and Sarai harbors resentment and bitterness and ends up oppressing Hagar all the more, and this escalates to the point where Hagar feels like she has to run away for the sake of the, her safety and the safety of the child that she's bearing. This is not like a we can be happy sister wives like the TV show kind of situation. But in the wilderness, Hagar is sought out by the angel of the Lord. And during the interaction, uh, the angel speaking as God tells Hagar that 
Her son will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone. Everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. Good news, isn't it? Think back to Genesis 3 again, to the fall. After they eat the fruit, God says to them, all of the these sin-enabled outcomes, all these consequences of what are going to happen now. Think of the, remember the language of, of what God says to the woman where he says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. This is the same kind of thing. Like your hand will be against everyone and everyone's hands will be against you. There will be hostility between you and your brothers. God here isn't condemning Hagar or her son, just like he wasn't cursing Eve back in Genesis 3, but he's laying out like these are the consequences of this kind of action. Like, because this is the situation you're in, it's going to be hard. There's going to be relational conflict that happens because of how sin played out in these actions. There are going to be sin-like consequences as well. And here's where Hagar, I think, speaks honestly into the situations that we've been talking about with the pregnancy center client, with the single mom, with, with like going through the divorce and sorting through everything afterwards and dealing with a, a spouse who really has no interest in following Jesus. There's a dignity in acknowledging that life is going to be harder relationally because of those things. Not just relationally, it, relationally in all kinds of ways. Life's just going to be harder because of those kinds of situations. And I think there's a dignity in just acknowledging that. And just saying, yeah, it is going to be hard. And there are going to be obstacles that you are going to be presented with that other people are not going to have to face in the same way. And whether it's because of messy family situations or relationship conflict or our own sinful choices, there are going to be difficult outcomes. But having this kind of honesty isn't left without hope. We can't look, overlook the fact that in this story, Hagar is met by the angel of the Lord in the wilderness. God comes to Hagar and speaks to her. Something that, that just kind of came to me this morning as I was going over my notes. Like, you don't see Abram and Sarai going after her. Like, they're not running into the wilderness looking for Hagar and the supposedly promised child that's in her womb. But it's God who goes after her. It's God who finds her on her way, probably trying to run back to Egypt. Probably trying to get home. He's the one who's looking for her. And maybe you've found situations where, like, despite your, your mistreatment by supposedly godly people who you thought would have your back, but they're not, God is still the one who's chasing after you. God is still seeking you. And God says these profound words to Hagar. He says, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. I will greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. 
This is like almost exactly the kind of language that God says to Abram in his great promise to Abram. And, and what's significant here is even though this situation wasn't God's ideal, this isn't like his plan for the promised child to come about, he still meets Hagar, who is just caught up in the mess of this situation, who's more acted upon than an actor in it, and he says, despite how you've been treated, despite of what's going on, despite of how horrendous this situation is, I am going to see you as someone who is a recipient of my blessing. My blessing isn't just for the the renowned patriarch Abraham, whose descendants are going to bless the world. No, I am going to bless your offspring as well. He elevates her from this acted-upon slave girl who's been abused by her masters and used for their gain as, and, and, and elevates her to a place of this great matriarch. Someone who can be esteemed. Who despite the severity and the difficulty of her situation is dignified. Why is this significant? Because God's not stingy with his blessing. It's not only the wealthy, blessed patriarch that gets the descendants, it's the oppressed, acted upon girl running to Egypt, scared for her life. And for all of us who have sorted through all kinds of life experience of abuse or the reality of a broken home or being single and struggling, God's blessing is is for us and His blessing is generous. God's blessing is not just for those who seem to have it all together. He pursues those whose lives are wrapped up in the brokenness of their situation, either from our own doing or from the doing of others. And we see, we see the clearest picture of this in Jesus. In Jesus who, who comes in the flesh proclaiming blessing to the poor and the oppressed and the persecuted. Who pronounced a year of jubilee to those who are oppressed. The year of jubilee in the Old Testament was this like, you have to release all of your servants and slaves. Like, everyone gets to go free. Jesus who sacrificially gave his life so that his inheritance as the exalted Son of Man is bestowed on all men and women who call upon him, who one day will return to claim ultimate victory over sin and the curse and the fall and all of its effects that play out in the brokenness of the world. God gives his blessing liberally. And it's available for the Tuesday morning Pregnancy Center client. It's available for the kid who grows up without a dad. It's available for the quintessential nuclear family. It's available even for those whose sinful actions have caused the hurt and the outcomes for others that have left them in brokenness. The echoes of the fall and consequences of sin are ultimately redeemed and find their resolution in Jesus. Finally, Hagar ends up naming her son Ishmael, which means God hears. God heard the cries of Hagar on the road away from Egypt as she left her homeland in a convoy following her new masters, Abram and Sarai. 
God heard the panic of the young woman realizing she had no say in her new union with the old patriarch. God heard her distress as tensions with her mistress escalated to the point where she fled. God heard and he showed up. In the same way that God hears the cries of the Israelites in Egypt who are enslaved, and he shows up as the angel of the Lord in the burning bush to Moses, God heard the cries of Hagar, and he shows up to her in the wilderness. He saw all of who she was. Her hurt, her abuse, her complicated pregnancy, her story, her sinful responses. He saw her in his image. And we read in this encounter that Hagar's interaction with the Lord, she knows that she's been seen. She knows that she's known. She knows that the angel of the Lord knows her in her most inner being and knows all of what she's been through. He acknowledges the the difficulty of what life is going to be. He promises her great things. And what's so interesting is she as a woman who probably was unfamiliar with God, becomes the one person in the Bible who names God. She calls him, you are El-Rohi, which means you are the God who sees me. Hagar didn't feel like she was just a fertile womb to God. That she was just some slave girl taken advantage of, but that God saw her and knew her. This hit me this week because of what, with all of the like complications of what this year looks like in us getting ready for a new baby and just the tensions and anxieties and trying to sort through all of that, the reminder that God is the God who sees me helps me know that he, he is familiar with the fear that I'm feeling. He knows how anxious I am about certain things. He knows how I worry over plans, and he knows where I take my pride too seriously. He knows the depth of my being. I think that is actually a comfort for you and I today. To know that we have a God who sees us, who doesn't just condemn us, who doesn't just point his fingers at us, but he sees us deeply. He knows our inward motivations. He knows why we acted why we acted. And like Hagar, he chooses to show up. There's a fantastic Old Testament scholar who, writing about this passage, he said, Hagar revels not in in the child that's been born or that she's about to deliver, but in the fact that she's privy to divine revelation. Hagar's response from, from this moment isn't like, oh great, I'm having a child. Her rejoicing is in the fact that God has come close and he sees me. She's fascinated more of the origin of the revelation than the content of it. As a church, we have so much more to offer than judgmental glances or strict boundaries or high hurdles. 
of being a community that those who find themselves outside of kind of the idealized picture of the nuclear family might feel judged by. We have a Savior who comes close, who knows us and sees us, and who is seeking to restore us and help us through the effects of the fall. We have something better than a happy family has to offer. We have a God who sees us and whose blessing is generous. The question is, is will we be the kind of people who, having been seen by God, having received the generosity of God in Christ, will we be those who see and who are generous? Those who would make the the client of the pregnancy center feel more welcome than condemned. Those who see the reality and messiness of life and seek to bring God's peace rather than write someone off. Would we be those who have eyes for the margins? Who are looking in the wilderness for those running? Will we have the honesty to call a spade a spade, yet with grace show the enormous blessing of God's Kindness most perfectly seen in Jesus. My prayer is that we would be those who are willing to enter the mess of real life because of the God who sees. Let's pray. God, you know us and you love us. You see us in our innermost being. And God, knowing that you care for us, help us to be those who, who care for others well, who have your grace, who have your generosity. And we, we might find deep comfort in knowing that we're seen by you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.